0: Glad you're you're here this morning. We are actually into week 16 of our study of the book of Philippians. So you guys that have been here for a long time have kind of known where we've been. For those of you that are just coming for the first time, this has been a journey for us. We have walked through this book kind of verse by verse and we're actually really into the home stretch. We've got about three or four weeks, depending on how today goes, three or four weeks to actually kind of wrap it up. And the first kind of series or the first part of our study was wrapped up in Philippians 1 and 2, which is this sort of call uh, that Paul has for the church to live in humility and obedience together, um, to really live as this one body that has a unified mission. And he's reminding the church that as they face struggle and persecution and heartache and hurt, that they've got to be unified in their call, and not unity in terms of we've all got to think the same, but we've got to have a like-minded mission together, and Paul loves this church and he gives them his best kind of this is what i have for you and this is what i want for you and then the second part of his letter after we move out of chapter two really begins to take a little bit different shift and it begins to kind of take a little bit more of a theological teaching where paul begins to teach about doctrine and about important things and a baseline by which the philippians could measure all incoming teaching because bad teaching was prevalent it was going all around the area and so paul was saying look I want to give you a baseline of sorts by which you can measure all other teaching. And so he kind of moved from this call for the church to be in harmony and unity and fight against division into this picture of, now, this is what I want you to understand and believe and think about God, this idea of teaching theology. The word theology really just is just a study of God and religious truth. So Paul's saying, this is what we've got to believe about God by which we measure up all other things. And that kind of began Paul's conclusion, and we've been spending seven weeks talking about Paul's conclusion, and a lot of that is his fault, because he started it really early. It's not my fault. He started it two chapters before he was actually done with his letter. He said, finally, and then he just goes on for another two chapters. So it's taken us a little bit of a while to get there, but we've been looking at this sort of theology, and we discovered about three weeks ago that Paul kind of splits it in half. He does this teaching part. And then he does this, and now this is how you live the stuff that I've just showed you part. Really what I've been talking about is where our theology comes in collision with how we live. That at some point in time in our life, what we say we believe about God has got to intersect with how we live. If theology remains purely cerebral, if it just remains something that we think and we know about God, but it doesn't impact how my life is lived, then it's worthless. So at some point in time... Our theology has got to change the way that we live. And that's what Paul's teaching these Philippians. He said, if you're going to say that we believe this or that about God, it's got to influence how we live. And last week, Paul got really kind of personal with the church. And we're going to kind of continue that thought a little bit this week. But last week, he got really personal. He said, listen, here's what I want you to do. As you live out this theology, as you try and live in a way that reflects what you believe about God, I want you to follow my example." Paul says, follow my example, and those that have followed the example that we gave you. In other words, the apostles that have come, follow their examples. And he goes, not only that, but beware of worldliness. And we talked about worldliness last week. Not be aware of, but beware of worldliness. Be on your guard against it, because worldliness kills. It's soul-destroying. And we talked about how to to fight off and be aware of, uh, of the things of the world. Now they will literally come and steal and kill your soul. And then finally, we talked about the fact that our place is not here in this world, that we have a citizenship in heaven. And so Paul's pleading with the church. He's saying, listen, I love you, and I want you to hear these truths. Follow my example. Don't let the world kill your soul. You're not from here. And he's going to take it one notch, uh, a little bit more personal this morning. And, and, and really, we're going to be reminded that looking into these letters is a very personal experience. And, and I had this sort of bigger thing planned where I was going to go Philippians 4, 2, all the way through verse 7, but... That sort of changed this morning. I was coming up here, and I was getting out Starbucks, and I found 15 cents and a pen on the ground. And I was really excited, and I started thinking about that, and then God changed what we're going to talk about. So, not sure how they go together, but it was a really good pen. And so... I figured I owed something to it. So my point is is that we're actually going to just look at these first two verses. Because when I read these, what you're going to see is it would be really easy to just skip over them. To just sort of skip over it and get on with the good stuff. Because the good stuff, we're going to learn about a peace that transcends all understanding. And and really having a joy in Christ. That's where we were headed. But if we skip over these two verses, I think we don't really understand what that peace and what that joy looks like. Which we're going to talk about next week. So if you've got your Bibles, what I want you to do is I want you to open to Philippians chapter 4. And we're going to start in verse 2. So if you've got it, go ahead and flip there. If you don't, then you can follow along with me. I will uh, read it to you. But we're going to take a moment, look at those couple of verses this morning, do a little bit something different. So sometimes God changes those things up on me right when I think I had it all figured out. So um, it'll be interesting, to say the least. So uh, Philippians chapter 2, let's pray before we open God's word. God, I thank you that you love us so much and that in all of our imperfections, you Still desire relationship with us so deeply, Father, that um, our living response is just to say we love you. We can't earn your love, we don't do anything to earn your favor, but God, you freely lavish it on us. So Lord, we pray that as we open your word this morning, you would teach our hearts in a really new way. Maybe it's something we need to hear, maybe it's just something we don't want to hear. God, I pray that you would speak to us, though. We know that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. This is living and active, um, God, and we don't take it lightly. Take a moment and just uh, pray in your own heart. Ask God to teach you something this morning. Just whisper that in your heart. God, teach me something this morning. Take a moment and pray for someone beside you or around you, in front of you, behind you. Just ask God to move in their life this morning. Be in the habit of praying for other people. Lord, we thank you for the weight of your word, um, Father, and we thank you that you teach us and you instruct us and you desire a relationship with us. We ask that you would be glorified and that you would open our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So the numbers and, uh, in your Bible, the little numbers and the big numbers, the chapter numbers and the verse numbers, those were added later. Paul did not sit down and write this letter and say, okay, one, you know, in fact, in the Greek was originally, Paul wrote it originally in the Greek, there was not even any punctuation. So people came in later and they kind of made these things make a little bit of sense. And Sometimes these numbers get a little bit out of whack and and Philippians 3 and 4 is really where that happens because 4-1, all right, chapter 4 verse 1 is actually a part of the end of chapter 3. So Paul is basically, what we looked at last week, giving instructions to these Philippians how to live, about fighting its worldliness and remembering their citizenship is in heaven. And then he wraps that up with four one, which is, my brothers, who I love and I long for, my joy and my crown, this is how you should stand firm in the Lord. That, this, is how you should stand firm. It's actually attached to the thought that happens at the end of chapter 3. So we're not skipping it. We looked at it a little bit last week. We're actually moving to verse 2, which is really where the better place is to start chapter 4. I know that nobody cares, but just something to file away. All right, so chapter 4, verse 2. Um, I'm going to go ahead and read all those verses we are going to go through, but we're going to pay attention to just the first two verses this morning. So I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, loyal Yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement And the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always, I will say it again. Rejoice and let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything but in everything through prayer, petition, and thanksgiving. Present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now, at first glance, you'll be able to see very quickly why four through seven would be really great things to talk about. Rejoice in the Lord. Let your gentleness be evident. Present to the Lord with um, with your petitions with thanksgiving and a peace that transcends all understanding. I mean, these are some amazing things. But really to understand them, we've got to deal with the first two verses there. And I'm going to work on the, those, those four verses next week. But I want to deal with these first Too, Because it would be really easy to gloss over them and just say, okay, so there's a couple of people here mentioned by name that have got some kind of issue. And Paul's pleading with the community to kind of make it work so that we can have that joy and so that we can have that peace. But those verses are really important. I believe there's something God wants to say to us um, this morning. I mentioned back in January that when we read these letters, like Philippians, we're actually eavesdropping on life. You know, Paul didn't write this letter to you, he didn't write this letter to me. And In God's infinite, amazing wisdom, God knew that we were going to be a part of it, but Paul wrote it as a person writing to a community. And we, when we have this letter, are eavesdropping into an incredibly personal conversation. And sometimes we forget that. You know, we read verses like, I can do all things through Christ, and we, you know, we sort of celebrate these things, we put them on posters and t-shirts, but we, when we really look at the letter as a whole, it's, a, it's an intensely personal correspondence to which Paul is writing to a group of people who he loves deeply and even addresses some of them by name. And that's what we see this morning. We peer into this sort of personal kind of encounter where no longer are the Philippians just a group of people that live somewhere in a town called Philippi, but they are addressed by name. And he says, I plead with Iodia and Syntyche, which I'm sure are beautiful, lovely names back in the day but sound very much like something you would catch and don't want. Uh, nobody ever really names their children Iodia. Sounds like something out of Star Wars on some level. When you think about naming your children Bible names, no one ever goes here. But I'm sure they were lovely. But he names them Iodia and Sintite to agree with one another in the Lord. Now, I don't know if you've ever thought about how cool it would be to have your name recorded, kind of in, for immortality in classic literature in the Bible. I mean, most of us probably haven't thought that, but if you thought about, man, I have my name, I did something, and my name got recorded, we probably wouldn't want it in this context, right? We'd want it to say something really great, like, oh, hey, you know, Sandy's really great and lovely and gentle, and, or Treb can lift 100 pounds right up over his head. You know, something great where we're like, everyone will remember me now. These two women are forever marked in history because of an argument or a disagreement or broken fellowship that they're in. It's been recorded in 2,400 different languages Over 2,000 years, these two women are known, and we don't see them really anywhere else in Scripture, as two women that Paul is pleading with to fix their relationship. That's what they are known for. And I say that a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but the reality is that Paul takes this incredibly seriously. And we have to deal with the idea of broken relationships because, of course, this does not really pertain to us I mean as a church we don't have this problem we don't have broken relationships with other people with each other with our family members and our marriages we've never felt weird about somebody else in this room so we know not really speaking to us particularly I mean we're the kumbaya singing this group of folks ever right we will hold hands but if you were to go to a church where this really was a struggle there might be a word here for us and I find it really interesting So Paul pleads with these women, and they're living in broken relationship. And the interesting thing about these women is that they were not pagans. These are women that loved Jesus. Paul actually says, they have contended at my side for the cause of the gospel, whose names are written in the book of life. So he's saying, these two women, these God-fearing, Jesus-following women, have fought with me for the sake of the church and the gospel. And he goes, and I am pleading with them to agree in the Lord. Their name is written in the book of life. In other words, they are saved and they are redeemed and they love Jesus and they are broken in relationship with each other. And it was Paul taking it seriously enough to write this letter from prison in Rome and address these two women. And I don't want you to miss this because it is really important. Remember when I told you way back when we started this study that Philippians was actually born out of a um, kind of gospel movement among a group of women. Paul went to this town to Philippi to share the gospel, and he asked around, hey, where did the Christians gather? And somebody said, well, they usually gather down by the river, right? Jewish people gather down by the river, and, and he was looking for a group of possibly Jewish Christians that he can begin to kind of, kind of teach, and, and that's kind of what Paul did. But oftentimes when he went and did that, he found Gentile people that were gathered there, and he became an, a, a kind of an advancement of the gospel among the Gentiles. Well, he goes down to the river, and there's a group of women having a prayer meeting, right? And from that moment, a group of Jewish women, Paul shares the gospel with them, and it says that this woman named Lydia, who was a, kind of a big-time businesswoman who dealed in personal, purple cloth, and through her, the church in Philippi was born, and it was born out of her living room. They moved that church to her house and the gospel movement in Philippi, all, and all that part of the eastern part of Paul's mission out there, was kind of moved forward by the role of women in the church. Powerful, powerful stuff. Well, these women were part of that core movement. They were part of that kind of, we're contending for the gospel with Paul. And when Paul writes this, he's writing it out of deep, love and respect not calling them out and demeaning them like look at these two women can you believe they're fighting he's actually calling them out of deep love and respect i mean imagine if you came to me this week and you sat down and downstairs with me or and you visit with me and you brought your your husband with you and y'all were having a fuss or a fight or you weren't getting along or you were a broken relationship with somebody and you came to me and you told me all about it and you said look we're struggling we don't get along i don't want to see him i wish they weren't here all those kind of things And then i stood up here on sunday morning and i looked out here at everybody and i said i want everyone to know this This person and this person are fighting. They're fighting. And I'm telling everybody right now, you guys need to fix it. And I want all of you that are here to help them fix it. I'll tell you a couple things that would happen. One, you'd kind of shun me for life. We'd be done, right? (laughs) Two, you'd probably never come back. Or you'd tear me something new on our way out and then never come back. Because we have such a deep distrust for the church and for leadership. But the fact that Paul can do this, is in a, in a picture of incredible health among the community. Because no one's reading this in Philippi going, oh man, they had called out, whatever, they were burnt. No, they're going, man, these women who we love, they're a fractured relationship and Paul's calling us to help them heal it. All of Philippians chapter 1 was about unity. It was about the church living in harmony together because they were reconciled through relationship with Christ. And so what Paul says is extraordinary. And he doesn't just call these two women to reconcile their relationship. He actually calls the whole of the community. And he says, listen, yes, and I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, to help these women who have contended at my side. The yoke fellow idea is just really a picture of co-laborers. You know, uh, if you put a pair of oxen in a yoke, a big wooden thing that goes over both their necks, and they pull at the same time. And when they work in concert, they can pull a huge heavy load. But if one of those oxen doesn't pull, the cart either just goes around in a circle or it doesn't move. So Paul says, Followers of Christ, people who I labor with, Yokeville, people who share my burden for the church, for the gospel, help these women reconcile their relationship. Here's the beauty in all this. The beauty in all this is that Paul was so passionately motivated about re- forgiveness and reconciliation in the church that he wouldn't let division exist. He just wouldn't have it. He hears word some 600 plus miles away, sitting in prison in Rome, that there is a division and that these women are fighting. And he writes a letter and he says, I plead with you, plead with you to live into gospel forgiveness and reconciliation. He doesn't care who's wrong. He doesn't even address that. He doesn't even correct it and say, you know, since like you shouldn't have done this or whatever, so say you're sorry. He just says, I plead with you to agree in the Lord. A couple of things that I want to, pull out of here this morning for you, and then I want to turn somewhere else real quick. The first one is this. Every broken relationship is an opportunity for forgiveness and for gospel reconciliation. Every single one. Here's the unique thing about it, is that you can't express gospel forgiveness and reconciliation until you have a broken relationship. Every opportunity that God puts before us is an opportunity to reconcile. Now, a lot of us don't want to live this way, because as we're going to see in just a minute, it's always somebody else's fault. It's never my fault. It's always you. Countless people, when they tell me about the struggles that they're having in their marriages or in their life or in their relationships or in their moms or their dads or whatever, it's always them. Always. Every relationship that we have that's broken is an opportunity for gospel forgiveness and reconciliation. And Paul calls on the whole of the community because he says, I Can't let it exist here. And you know why? Because when we let division and brokenness exist within the confines of the church, and not the walls like we have in this little space here, but the church, the gathering, the ecclesia, the people, when we allow division and brokenness to exist, it is a foothold for the enemy to disrupt the unity and mission of the church. Because we become more focused on our brokenness and our relationships than we do on advancing the gospel and loving people well. And you know what happens in our life? When we allow broken relationships to exist in our marriages, and with our family, with our mom, with our daughter, with our sons, with whatever, with that friend who we've known for years, when we allow that brokenness to manifest, it creates resentment. It creates frustration and anger. And as long as those things exist, as we're going to learn next week, a peace that transcends all understanding is an impossible, impossible to achieve. Because when broken relationships exist, disharmony exists, We're not going to experience the full peace of God. Now, every one of us, if we're really honest, has got some broken relationship. One that we don't like to talk about or something we haven't talked to in years or the fact that that person in this room makes me absolutely insane. They stabbed me in the back. They didn't do this. They should have said that. Whatever it is, even husband and wives gathering here are not living necessarily the lives that they know they're called to live. But I started thinking as I was looking at this, what causes this? Because I think some of the cause is really important. Paul doesn't address it at all. He just says, look, I plead with you. Be about forgiveness and reconciliation. And I plead with the church to be about that for you. But I started thinking, I think it matters for us to pay attention to the wise. Now, about a year ago, we studied the book of James. James kind of verse by verse, similar thing we're doing with Philippians. and We came across a section in James chapter 4 that I want to revisit for a minute because when you couple James' thoughts on why fighting and quarrel exists in the church and you partner with Paul's deep call to gospel forgiveness and reconciliation, there's a little bit of a world-changing thing that happens. So I'm going to flip over there for a second, and then you can follow me if you want to. If not, I'll just read it to you. And then I think we'll pair these things together, and it will, it will give us a deep understanding of some things that are happening. James chapter 4, Paul, or James says this, What causes fights and quarrels among you? All right, which is a great question. What causes, and he's talking to Jewish Christians. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You want something but don't get it? You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your own pleasure. So what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, it's not a surprise that James is actually addressing a similar problem that Paul was addressing. The church is filled with broken relationships. I mean, if you've been around the church at all, you will experience the fact that the church is filled with brokenness, and there are fights and quarrels. In fact, in my life, some of the most awful experiences that I've ever seen between people have happened within the metaphorical walls of the church. In fact, that's why a lot of us, if we're real honest, are kind of jaded about church anyway. Because we've seen behind the curtain, we know what those meetings are like and what people say about each other and the gossip and the slander and the frustration, all those things. We've seen the inner workings of the animal and we don't want any part of it. Right? It's why people are usually okay with Jesus, but not okay with Christians. Right? So it's not a surprise that James is actually addressing this same thing that Paul's addressing by saying, what about this fighting and quarreling? And James says, what causes it? And he almost asks like a question as if Brother Bob in the back was going to be like, well, let me tell you, so and so didn't make coffee and then I got frustrated and they broke the cord and now we can't do that and so it's all ruined. You're kind of waiting for someone to say something. But he doesn't really do that. He asks a question and then he answers his own question with another question, which is lovely. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your own desires that battle within you? So James says, you want to know what's causing fights and quarrels? I'll tell you. It comes from the battles that are happening in you. In other words, the problem with your church is you. The problem with your marriage is you. The problem with your relationship with your mom is you. The problem with your relationship with your children is you. With your friend, it's you. You want to know why? Because it begins with a battle that's happening inside of you. Now, none of us will ever admit that because it is always them. Always them. How many people have come to me and said, Trev, I'm telling you, my marriage or my relationship would be great if he or she would just do that. If my mom wouldn't try to run my life for me, right, and my children wouldn't try and do this thing, and my husband would do this, my wife would do if these things would just do that, we would be okay because it is always someone else. Now, even though we all know that it's part of us, we see that the failure belongs in someone else. What James says is you want to know what starts these fights and quarrels among you? It's you. It's the battle that's going on inside of you. And you want to know what that battle is? It's selfishness. Listen to this. You want something, but you don't get it, and you kill and you covet because you cannot have what you want. You fight and you quarrel. Selfishness is the root of the battle that goes on inside of us and the root of our broken relationships because you want something and you don't get it. So what do you do? You kill and you covet. Now, don't think about wants like, oh, I want a TV or I want a car or I want a new house. Think about car wants like kind of emotional things. I want him to respect me. I want her to support me. I want her to get out of my life and quit telling me what to do. I want what my neighbors have. I want a better life. I want this. I want that. I want respect. And James says that when we don't get it, what we want, we kill and we covet. Selfishness drives us to want, to get the I wants, as my dad used to say. All you guys have is the I wants. I want this. I want that. When we have the I wants and we don't get what we want, that selfishness drives us to quarrel, and or James says it does two things. We kill, and we covet. Now, we know that, that James isn't talking um, literally about killing. The early century Christians were not killing each other because they didn't get what they wanted, all right? But he's talking about emotionally, spiritually, metaphorically. You want something, that person doesn't give it to you, and so you kill them with your glances, with your stares, with your words, with your attitude. Anybody that's been married knows exactly what I'm talking about, because we do it to each other. You kill each other with the way that you withhold things, the way that you shun, the way you shut doors, the way you act, the way that you speak, the things that you say. That's what Paul's, or James is referring to. He's saying, when we don't get what we want, we kill for it, and I will break my relationship with you to demonstrate what you didn't give me, and I will hold my ground, and I will fight against it. So we kill, and then James says we covet. You know what coveting is? It's just wanting something that's not yours. I want a better life. I want my husband to, to work harder, or my wife to, to go out and get a job, or I want my, my girlfriend to do this, or my boyfriend to do this, or my mom to do that. I want this, and I want a life that's not mine. And when I don't get what's not mine, I fight in a quarrel. Why? Because my problem is me, it's not you, it's me. The root of our quarrels and our frustrations and our struggles and our heartaches are always me, selfishness. Now, granted, there's times that people do other things, but it's usually always rooted in my selfishness. So James goes on to say this. He goes, and you, you have because you don't ask God. You don't have because you don't ask God. And when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. You may spend what you get on you. So James says, look, you know the reason why these things aren't, re- aren't reconciled is because you don't go to God first. God is always our last resort. After we try everything else and after our marriage is on the 10th turn of almost ending, we finally just go, okay, well, we're going to try and go back to church because nothing else is working. Well, I have a broken relationship with this person and, and I ignore it and I ignore it and I ignore it and finally when it just wounds me deep enough, I say, God, I need you to fix it. James is saying, look, ask God, but don't ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on you. Don't think monetarily here. So that God will show them why they're wrong and you can gloat, right? I mean, that's really what we want. God, and I, I can't tell you many times I've heard this. God, will you pray for my husband? Will you pray that he sees how wrong he is? <laughs> yeah, I, I'll pray for that. <laughs> not going to work out real well, but I mean, I'll pray for that. I mean, that's what we want. So that I can spend what I get on me. Because I want to be, I want to be made right. I want to be made whole. I want to be supported. That selfishness that drives us to spend what God gives us on us, God says, I'm not going to give you when you ask out of those motives so that you can be proved right. Don't expect it. What God desires is for us to come face to face with the reality that we're broken and selfish and then be reconciled. So this is what Paul does. Back to Paul. He says, looks at these two women, Yodia and Syntyche, and he says this. He says, I plead with you. plead with you. Agree in the Lord.'" He doesn't care who's right or wrong because if both of those women, as they follow Christ, recognize that my struggle is my selfishness, and she recognizes my struggle is my selfishness, all of a sudden the dynamic changes because it's not you, it's me. And it's not you, it's me. And we realize that we are both broken in Christ. Forgiveness and reconciliation is our answer. So here's how we write relationships that are broken. Swallow your pride. Swallow it. You're broken, you're sinful, and you're selfish. Come to grips with that. Then realize what God has done for you, that he's forgiven you even when you're a mess, and he's loved you that way, and then he called you to love people the same way. When that happens, when you realize that I'm swallowing my pride, I can't do anything to earn God's love, he loved me enough to forgive me even in the middle of my absolute mess. Forgiveness to you is a totally different picture now. No longer am I holding grudges and resentment because God doesn't hold those against me. So what gives me the right to be resentful and hold a grudge against you if the God of the universe won't do it for me? He freed me. I live in forgiveness. Every broken relationship you have is an opportunity for forgiveness and reconciliation. You don't have the luxury to hang on to it. Now, you can't control somebody else's response to it, but you don't have the luxury to hang on to it. Forgive let it go, and be reconciled. We cannot experience the joy we're going to talk about next week and the peace that we're going to talk about next week until we realize that broken relationships within the context of the body of believers is about God's reconciliation. If you're hoping to live in joy and peace and you are living in broken relationship and pretending it doesn't exist, don't expect to have God fill those holes. You've got to deal with those brokenness. So when you walk out of these doors today, write the letter, make the phone call, invite that person for coffee, call your dad, whatever you've got to do to say, I have to live in a place where I forgive you. All of us are good with forgiveness as soon as somebody else says they're sorry. Every single one of us. You come and you say, I'm sorry, and I will say, it's okay, I forgive you, we're going to be all right. But what happens if I make that move first and I say, I can't live this way anymore. can't live this way. So... I want to live in forgiveness and reconciliation because right relationships are so important to God. As we close our time in worship, I really want to challenge you to think about the relationships. I want you to ask God to place names on your heart. God, who do I need to go before and just say, I'm sorry? And don't walk up and say, I forgive you. That never works, right? (laughs) Try that one in your marriage. It's all right, I forgive you. (laughs) Forgive me for what? You know, you walk up and you say, I'm sorry. I just think God wants us to have a right relationship and whatever that means, I'm in. Don't walk out of this place if you haven't dealt with the relationships that God's calling you to because the joy and the peace that transcends all understanding will follow. We'll talk about that next week. Let's pray.